Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. This is going to be the third in our uh, short mini-series for applicants to neurosurgery residency programs this year. JP, I think it's been a, a, a really good run. We had uh, Kathy Guzman, who's the administrator for USC on our first podcast, Jeff Bruce, who was the uh, program chair at Columbia for several years, and now we're on to our third episode. Um, so for this episode, I wanted to just have a conversation, just me and JP, to give our listeners sort of our insights and experiences with the interview process and the application process. What do you think about that, JP? Well, I think it's the logical next step. I mean, as you said, we've talked to someone on the administrative side of things. We've talked to someone who had years of experience as a program director, um, kind of running the show, selecting residents uh, who would you know, mesh well with the program as, as he ran it. And so now we ourselves, as people going through the experience this year virtually on the interviewing end, um, can kind of share our experiences, you from the perspective of an attending who's not part of the residency leadership per se, and me as some as a resident who's helping to select and interview these people who, as we all know, gives a very limited amount of input to the higher ups for, for who gets selected. Well, I think, JP, don't you think that a lot of credence is given to the residents, especially for the uh, for the sub-eyes or students that have come through the program in terms of what they think about uh, about these applicants? So the conventional wisdom, um, which I always heard as a medical student, heard on the interview trail as a sub-eye, and I think pretty much anyone I talk to would agree on today, is that whether it be as a sub-I, which of course was not an option this year for many people to, to travel around the country, or just as an applicant, the greatest power that residents have during interview season is to blacklist someone, is to say no, is to have the right of veto. And much more of the ability to select and positively opt for someone rests with the program director, with the chair, with the involved attendings. And you know, as it varies between different programs, I think they'll give more or less credence to the resident opinion, not just on how someone is as a worker, but how they mesh with the culture and the cohesiveness of the group itself. But far, far greater, I would say, the residents have the power to say no than to influence their bosses in saying a yes. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think we heard Kathy Guzman say that because the one individual with more power than the residents in that regard is the um, administrator of the program, right? The, the, usually it's a woman, but not always, who actually handles the intake of the applications, the interfacing, the communication. And we heard Kathy talk about that in terms of, of not uh, expecting her to be able to get back to within 20 minutes on the email, right? Uh, those folks have a lot of power. So maybe we could start by just going over some of the mechanics of how this plays out. And and I, I apologize if this is a little bit repetitive for some folks, but I think the way it works at most places, it certainly works like this at USC in Miami, is that after all the uh, applications have been received, people get selected for interview. Then those who interview are the ones that are seriously considered, right? So um, that 
group of people then gets sort of ranked by each individual attending. And there's always the sort of black box as to where the, the chairman or the program director has a stronger vote. And then they come up with like a preliminary rank list of like applicants from one to 40 or one to 50 or one to 20 or whatever they're going to rank. And then there's like a meeting, right? People get together and they start to hash it out. And that's where there's some interaction uh, because that initial rank list was made purely uh, by individuals working in a silo. And then people get together, they start to say, well, I really like this guy. And so, you know, he or she should be ranked a little bit higher. And of course, the vice versa could be true as well. So is that how you're seeing it happen at Rush as well? Yeah, I mean, as you said, I, I think that general pattern really holds in most programs. And then based on the history of the program, based on the personalities of uh, all the attendings involved, and of course, just based on the culture there, you're going to see variation in in the degree to which each party has say uh, before that final list that, you know, they click submit. Um, And I think an important thing, at least that I tried to do when I was interviewing, and so I would, you know, advise anyone this year in particular Um, If you know people at programs that you're interviewing at and that you're interested in, uh, someone that you really trust, someone to whom you can speak personally, try to ask them, you know, if they're in the residency, if they're a little more senior in the residency, perhaps, um, try to ask them what that process looks like at the specific institution you're targeting, because then they can give you some insight into, oh, well, the residents kind of do have much more of a say here. And particularly, we listen to this year because they're going to be your chief, like Kathy Guzman talked about. Or they could tell you, well, this attending is very vocal. uh, Or here, you know, it's really the program director with some advice from the chair, but he's really the one who makes the final call. And so if you have a good enough relationship with someone that you can trust them to give you good, sound advice, um, I would say this year in particular don't hesitate to reach out and try to get some intel onto the specific mechanics for how a given program you're interested in makes this selection. Yeah, that's great advice. I think that every program has its own flavor in terms of who's carrying more weight or less weight in in this. And and I, you know, I, uh, it's funny you and I tend to ask the questions that we would want to answer ourselves. And so I wanted to take this opportunity to sort of comment on a lot of the stuff we've heard just in the last two podcasts. Um, a lot of interesting things have been going on. We've had two sets of interviews here in Miami. I've reviewed all the applications. I was only there for one set of interviews because I was out of town, uh, which I guess isn't really an excuse because you could Zoom, right? But I was traveling. <laughs> uh, so there's no good excuse there. But I looked at all the applications. And it's interesting because from that first set of interviewees, which was about 24 folks, I've already gotten several emails from people from that first batch thanking me for the wonderful job I did interviewing them. <laughs> well, of course. Of course, because I never met them, right? It's fantastic. And this You're is- so unforgettable, Dr. Wang, that they didn't even need to meet you to remember the conversation. <laughs> that is exactly right. And this goes exactly to the point of, wow, I mean, are, are folks so busy that they haven't figured these pieces out? Clearly, those are batch uh, emails. I didn't, I didn't want to throw these people under the bus. I didn't you know, share the emails with anybody else. I felt like, well, if somebody's willing to put together a cut and paste email, that was more effort than no email at all. So, so I got a good laugh out of those. I took some pictures of them though. They're funny. Well, um, let, me, let me ask you on that point in particular, because we, we kind of talked about this with Dr. Bruce on the last episode in this series about what to do if you miss an interview with a prominent attending or a key 
person at a program due to a technical failure. But let's say just in, in a case like this, you weren't available. This happens every year. Someone has to do an emergency surgery or they're traveling and, and by poor chance, you miss an interview with an attending. But let's say in your case, you're a very prominent figure in the field. Uh, I'm sure many applicant students were excited to meet you. They've heard all the stories about the crazy interviews. So let's say A, in from your perspective, obviously disregarding the, the form emails, thanking you for the wonderful conversation. But if someone was really excited to speak with you, uh, from your perspective, what would you have them do? Would you want to hear from them via email? And then B, um, I guess this is a more subtle point, but many people were probably excited to actually meet you this year. And even the ones who will get to virtually interview with you won't have that real experience. And I feel for them. I had a great time meeting my legends and heroes in the field. Uh, I still remember talking with Dr. Ed Benzel on my interview, even though I didn't wind up at Cleveland Clinic. It was an honor to just sit and talk with him for 20 minutes. So how would you advise any students out there who have missed their chance to meet the great Dr. Mike Wang to, to handle that? Do you want to hear from them? Is it annoying? What, what would make you happy as one attending this year? Well, JP, you're far too kind. Uh, they're likely to find me at the AANS or CNS or spine section meeting at the lobby bar of the meeting hotel with all my friends. Uh, that's when they can meet up with me, but it's going to be too late for this cycle. Uh, you are too kind, but I will tell you a funny story when I was interviewing, and I don't want to compare myself to Michael Puzo, but when I was interviewing in 1995, I was a medical student, and I'd already met Dr. A as a sub-I, but a lot of folks coming from around the country to interview at USC wanted to meet him, and um, he wasn't there. He was very busy. He, he, it's not that he didn't want to interview them. He was just so busy, and so instead of interviewing them, he left them a, 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 uh, an envelope with a letter in it. And it was a it was a generic letter. It was a very nice letter, actually. It said, I'm so sorry that I didn't get to interview you. These are the reasons why, and I wish you the best of luck in your application. And I remember all the, the 20 people in the room opening these envelopes, and there were there were many of them that were disappointed because they did want to meet folks. And I will tell you that um, it's kind of like your last chance to meet so many powerful people in this field and actually have an audience with them, right? Because you're meeting what, like 10 to 15 people per program. You interview at 20 places. So you're meeting at, at uh, you're meeting two to 300 people, right? Many of whom are either already in the positions of power or many of whom will be someday in a position of power. Um, so I think you're right. It's, it's a very unfortunate year this year. I would say that if there's someone who really feels compelling, uh, compelling information or personal information about how this person might help you, you absolutely need to reach out to that person. And so if you didn't get to interview with a certain attending who you, you think is going to be your ally, you should definitely reach out to that person. The question is, how would you even have that connection, right? If you didn't already know them well. And that's part of the magic. I think that, uh, you know, Jeff Bruce said that, you know, the interview is almost like icing on the cake. I would say that, if it's really just like that, then why even have these, right? I mean, if it really is just like the icing on the cake, why do we even make people go through this process? What do you think, JP? What do you think is the reason why we're even interviewing people? Well, I, you know, it, it's it's a cliche at this point, but it it's, you know, cliches are, are what they are for a reason, because there's at least a kernel of truth, if, if not something larger to it, but it's a seven-year program. And, and so many questions about, why X, Y, Z within neurosurgery and neurosurgery training, 
the answer is it's a seven-year program, but that that's the case. It's a long time that you're going to be in a small group, both the residents you're working and living with and the attendings you're working for. And so I think the ability to really get that personal feel, um, maybe Dr. Bruce meant it's, it's icing on the cake insofar as the people who are applying and who are getting the interviews are qualified. Sure, that you know they, they've already passed that one filter, so to speak. But the interview process allows you to see, do I really want this person hanging around for seven years, seeing them more than my family, getting to know them better than my kid? Um, and, and will I claw my eyes out? Will I want to kill them? Or will they help me get through the most difficult period of my life? Can I rely on them uh, getting through it with me and getting the work done? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, JP. So if you were to have one take home of the interview, I think it's your chance to demonstrate to the folks that you're talking to that you are there to show them that you are going to be an asset to their organization, that you are going to make them happy they matched you. You're going to make them happy that they ranked you high. Now, let me just throw in a corollary because I was talking to a young applicant this weekend and and the, the person was saying to me, well, it seems like my interviews are all going great. Like everybody seems to love me, right? And I had to just point out a very obvious fact to me that is not obvious always to the applicant that this is a two-way interview, not only because it's a match process, this is also a program's chance to advertise their strengths to people out there who will be neurosurgeons, almost all of them, right? So many, many, many programs, I won't name them here, use the interview process as an opportunity to sell you. And if they're going to sell you, the worst thing they could do is try to make you feel uncomfortable. So just because you're not feeling uncomfortable doesn't mean you're not screwing up your interview, (laughs) okay? I don't want to create unnecessary anxiety out there, but that's my take on it. So just because you're feeling good vibes, sometimes that's just a very clever program trying to pitch their program to the world. Right, and that's a perfectly reasonable observation and a, a smart one that just as the applicants trying to sell themselves to the program they want to be ranked highly. Well, all the programs want to be ranked highly as well. Or at the very least, even though they're only going to get two to three people each year, leave a favorable, powerful, impressive reputation with all the next generation of neurosurgeons going out to the various programs throughout the country. Um, what I would say, and something that I always have told people for years, even before I applied, I had this firm opinion and I held true to it for my own interview cycle. And I hold true to it today. I I tell everyone this when it comes up, uh, specifically for that reason we were discussing the fit of the applicant to the program and to make the applicant happy where they end up and to make the program happy with that person. I think the most important thing you can do during the interview process is to be honest. And you may disagree with me, Dr. Wang, and many people might because a prevailing philosophy during this process is sell yourself and try to make yourself look like the person that that program wants. And that might change with each program you go to. And so you'll present yourself differently and you'll maybe say, oh, I'm interested in this or I'm interested in that. And obviously you speak to the people you're speaking to, right? And so you can present things differently with with shades of gray. But 
I think there are many people who go through the interview process and try to be everything to every program and try to please all people. And if you're dishonest with fundamental characteristics about who you are, what you want for your career and your life, where you want to be, what you want to get out of your training and your career, all you can do is increase the chances that you wind up at the wrong place for you where you will not fit in well because you have not sold your genuine product to these programs. You've, you've put a false front on, and so then you're going to match falsely. No, I agree with you 100%, JP. I've always lived my life on my own terms. And I would tell you that it's very hard to be um, be disingenuous because you have to keep up with all the lies or the, the falsehoods that you've kept stored in your head. And, and it's much easier and much more clear cut to be honest. The other thing I'll point out is that human beings are amazing lie detectors. And, you know, we're very good at it. Even on Zoom, you can pick up when people are lying to you quite easily, actually, just from the tone of their voice or their uh, the ways that their eyes look or, or behave. And remember also as an applicant that, because most people listening are applicants, not programs, as an applicant, you know, everybody you're interviewing with has not only been through this process, but they've interviewed lots of times and lots of people. So it's kind of like when you try to lie to your parents, right? It's, it doesn't usually go well, right? Because A, they have more power than you B, because they raised you so they know you. And and I, I would tell you uh, the same advice JP's told you, which is be honest. But the, the flip side of that is this, which is that even though you're being honest with people, you are presenting or putting forth a dimension of yourself. And I think, JP, you are 100% right. If I had to pick one take-home message uh, that people want to send out when they're interviewing, it's that I'm the kind of person that's going to play well and do a good job for the seven years, even if I don't have the most papers or I don't have the most accolades or I don't have the best board scores or didn't come from the best medical school. We care a lot more about what you're going to accomplish in the next seven years than the last even though the last may be reflective of the next, right? So we know lots of great neurosurgeons who maybe didn't go to the, re- the, the best residency. And that was what Jeff Bruce was saying, which is that, you know, it's okay not to match your, your number one uh, choice, right? It's okay to match your number four, number seven choice. I think that's what he was saying. Right. And, you know, the, the funny thing, because this has come up a few times when I've had this talk with people, you said humans are great lie detectors. You know who are extra great lie detectors? Neurosurgeons who have been seeing patients in hospitals for decades in the ER, in the ICU, in clinics, seeing thousands of people who lie to your face every day. And uh, you just do that day in and day out for a living. And then, you know, a a medical student thinks they can trick somebody who's been doing this for decades. I I would just strongly advise against trying to trick people. And I think the most important thing we could say in terms of take-home points, the number one lie to avoid this year is oh i'm going to rank you number one and how many places how many places a given applicant sends that email to i i know you talk about this every year dr wang yeah it's it's a big thing and and i if if there was a positive message i think um we heard reg hate talk about it in an early podcast um when reg was talking about what steve giannata says is the number one predictor of success in residency right It, it was really I mean, it blew my mind when he said it. He said that Dr. G, who, again, has served in so many senior advisory roles in organized neurosurgery, he said the number one predictor of success is resistance to fatigue. And oh, yeah. If you, think, 
right? If you think about um, Hell Week, right, before Bud's training for Navy SEALs, that is really about physical, psychological, and mental fatigue and being able to withstand it in the right way. Um, maybe, JP, you can tell, since you're a little closer to process, what that's like having just gone through it and still going through it maybe a little bit, and how do you relay that ability to, to folks out there? Sure. Um, briefly, I, w- I would point our listeners back. That was episode 26, Quality Time, Finding Balance in Neurosurgery with Dr. Reg Hayde. Genuinely one of my personal favorites, both for a conversation I got to have with another person and an episode to listen to and revisit. Um, but in terms of that process and that quality of resistance to fatigue, um, it's not something I think I came in with to the extent that I have it today. Certainly when I was interviewing and when I was looking at neurosurgery residency and and signing up for it, like everyone who's applying, I thought, oh yeah, I can take it. I have what it takes. I'm tough. I'll make it. Yeah, nothing can stop me. And then you get the job and you realize that however many times it's been described to you, however many nights you've taken call with people at however many places, because I got to do away rotations my year, um, there is no way to know what it's actually like until you're doing it, like anything in life. And so consequently, there's no way to know how difficult and physically taxing it actually is until you're in it. And so I would say I haven't quit yet (laughs) and I haven't been fired yet. And that's because every day that goes by, you develop more and more resistance to fatigue. It's not some inborn quality that is as strong as it ever will be the day you show up. I think it's an ongoing uh, aspect of myself, at least, and an ongoing strength that I guess you have to show up with that capacity and you have to show up with that facet of your mind and your body And further, you have to have the discipline, not just to keep going no matter what, but to get better at keeping going no matter what. You know, JP, you're you're bringing up so many great points today. And I'll just throw this out there. Anybody can use this if they want, and it would not be hauled against them because you're just getting advice. If I were to be, if I were to wake up tomorrow morning, like in that Tom Hanks movie, right? And I was now an applicant again. And I was in this era with the coronavirus and the Zoom and all that. I can tell you what I would do right now. Uh, let's say I'm a student here at UM. What I would do is I would go and take extra call right now. Nobody's asking anybody to do this. I would go take call, try to do two nights in a row, try to do Q2 and try it out. And then when I'm on my interviews, and this is the kind of psychopath I probably am, People say, well, well, what have you been doing lately? And everybody, you know how everybody's like, well, I practice juggling. I took up magic. I'm, you know, I'm reading novels. I'm, you know, crochet or stitching or doing ballroom dancing is the usual answer. I would answer back, you know, I heard John Paul on the podcast and he said, you know, I got to be worried about not being prepared for fatigue. So I've been practicing taking calls. And I've been trying to do Q2 call. And I know I'm not working as hard as the interns and residents, but I'm in the hospital all the time. And I'm trying to see if I can do it. And then the attendings will all ask you this, like, so how's it going? And it would give me an opening to to really tell them a lot about my fun experiences and crazy things I've seen in the hospital in the middle of the night. But I think that's what I would do in this year of 2020, which has just been totally lousy for everybody. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I you gave me that advice, that very advice. I did not go into the hospital and take call during this period of my interview process. Um, I did on more than one occasion, um, completely unrelated to my sub eyes or any rotation. I went over 24 hours without eating a few times just to see if I could. I stayed up for, I think my max was 40 hours one time. I stayed awake just to know that I could do it for one day when I had to. And then if you want to talk about real psycho, after interviews, after match day, a good month after I matched, I went and took call with Greg Basil at Jackson one night just because I was on campus. And that was pretty funny. He loves you so much because of that, by the way. <laughs> uh, well, you know, we're getting near the part of this episode where we should wrap up, but I think we should finish with a little rapid fire fun. And quickly, why don't we run through, uh, I want to put Dr. Mike Wang in the position of an applicant this year. And you get to the end of the conversation. There's the awkward silence and the attending says, well, do you have any questions for me? What would you, (laughs) this is the thing that every applicant never knows what to say because Everyone has already given a presentation about the program. So you know everything about the program. You know who all the attendings are. And everyone has the same questions like, oh, well, how stable is the leadership here? Do you foresee any changes to the residency structure? Everyone knows the tried and true boring questions. What kind of things would either you ask or would you actually like to hear in that situation? I'll I'll give you two paths to take this. You know, JP, I love that you, I, I don't, I didn't know that you set me up this way. So I'll tell you what I said. I'll tell you exactly what I said in 1995. Um, people would ask me that exact same question. Nothing has changed 25 years later. Yeah. I would say this, and it wasn't a contrived thing. I really wanted to know. I would ask, and it's usually the chairman, tell me about the outpatient experience for residents. And I can tell you back in 1995, and I don't know if it would happen today, there were so many instances where the attendings in the room, their jaws would drop. And they would say, excuse me? I'm like, yeah, no, I mean, I, I know that I'm going to get a great operative experience here at, you know, Hospital St. Elsewhere, University X or whatever. And I know you have great lab facilities and a great library and, you know, all that. But I want to know what the outpatient experience is like. And they would all have the same look on their face. They'd be like, nobody ever asks about that. And just for you who are listening, what that what I mean by that is what opportunities are there for residents to go into the clinic and see what happens in the clinic? Because the residents forget about the clinic and the clinic is so important, but the attendings know how important the clinic is. There is no OR without clinic, but most attendings hate clinic and most residents don't get to go to clinic. I love clinic. You've been to my clinic, right, JP? I love clinic. Um, I went. To, I went to your clinic multiple times before I ever went in your OR. And having seen you in clinic and the kind of clinic you run and the way you run it, the fact that you asked that all those years ago does not surprise me in the least. I am firmly in your camp. I'm one of the few souls in neurosurgery who loves clinic. And even if you just want to know, if even even if you're saying. I don't even like clinic, but I want to know what kind of clinic experience you have. The attendings are going to be like, what? Right? Because it, it, it's it's a little bit of a gamble, right? Because people are like, well, you know, what are you really asking me? 
But for the really clever attendings, they're going to know at least that you're thinking about neurosurgery as a complete medical practice uh, right. and not just as going to the operating room. Everybody writes the same personal statement. Can I tell you? It's always the same thing. Somebody with a brain tumor or vascular lesion. It's the same. I've read that personal statement. I want to tell you over a thousand times. And um, I'm sorry if any of you listening have written that personal statement, because as soon as I started, I just I just stopped. I stopped reading it. Um, so I think, you know, there is this thing about boredom that you've got to stand out a little bit. You've got to be memorable in a good way. And it's hard because if you wear the wrong looking clothes, people will remember you for that. There's one guy I'll never forget in Miami where they couldn't get over that, that, that meeting I was telling you about where the residents and attendings are in the room and they're, they're going over the list and trying to modify the list. But somebody was, you know, we had their pictures, right. And somebody picture was a little smirky and, you know, mm -hmm. unfortunately you, you know, they have nicknames and like, and as that person was called smirky, he dropped further and further and further down the list um, yeah. merely for appearance. And that's really unfortunate, right? But um, I do think that being memorable is important. And I think there are a lot of really fantastic ways to be memorable. Um, and it doesn't always come down to like, I, I summited Everest or, you know, I, I you know, I, I started, a, I dug a well for kids in like Nigeria or something like that. It doesn't have to be like that. There are things about you as a person that can just be memorable. I, I would say this year, there was a guy that I didn't interview, but everybody talked about because he did a magic trick over Zoom. And I think, you know, it's a little bit of a gimmick, but it took it took some balls. It You could have screwed it up. Right. And it's not easy to do magic on Zoom. I'll tell you that. Um, and you love magic, right, JP? I do. I'm a, I'm a big fan, a uh, big fan of Penn, Penn and Teller. They're my favorites. Um, that's really funny because my interview cycle, there was someone who got dubbed the magician because he whipped out a card trick at every program, which I saw about seven or eight times. Um, but maybe, maybe in a future episode, it would be fun for us to run through uh, some of the famous people who, who earned these monikers on their uh, interview cycles in years past. As teasers, I could mention Mr. Blue Label. Um, I could mention the pianist who famously wrote a piece of piano music to play for Dr. Spetzler, who always kept a piano in his room for interviews. And Dr. Spetzler didn't interview that year. What a heartbreak. Um, and I can that, tell you about the gentleman, the young gentleman who threw up in my backyard. <laughs> for an interview. Uh, we're not going to mention names right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, so to, to kind of wrap up this episode, not just a discussion of the episodes we've had so far covering this interview season, but looking ahead at the next few weeks and further topics we want to cover. Um, one of the important things that we did want to include in this series was not just the perspective of the administrators, the program directors, the attendings and the residents, but we do want to hear from the students who are on the trail this year, as it were, virtually, and hear what it's like. You know, we're, we're all sitting here talking about, oh, you missed the opportunity to meet your heroes and how do you make an impression? But we're all talking about it from the other end. So we don't want to have someone on an episode and single them out in the field and put them on the spot, et cetera, et cetera. But if any of you students on the interview trail this year are listeners of the show and are fans, please contact us. You've heard me say it a, a hundred times, neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. Write to us with your impressions of the trail so far, with your fears, with your concerns, with your positive experiences. 
with any questions you would like us to address that maybe haven't occurred to us because we're not in your shoes. Write to us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you'd like to hear on the air. And in the next couple of weeks, in another episode in this series about the match this year in the interview process, we'll try to air as many of those comments as we can and answer those questions as we're able. But until then, thanks for listening, and keep your eyes on this feed for more information and perspectives on this year's match.